Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. If we were to divide Ephesians in half, um, being six chapters, it's true that the end of the third chapter would be the actual half, but then as far as the way the content works, the focus of the apostle, we can also see a change starting in chapter 4. So the first three chapters has to do with God's great declaration or Paul's great declaration about God's wonderful and marvelous salvation, his making a new creation, a new community, um, a redeemed uh, body. For, we're sinners, but we're a redeemed group of sinners in Christ. We're adopted. We have all these benefits that are ours in Christ. And he celebrates this in the book of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, um, kind of the culmination with a picture of us as the holy temple of God. Like the old temple in, in old Judaism was to point people to the true and living God. People would look at that temple and say, that's the true God um, dwells there. Uh, but in reality, that was just a forecast of the living temple, the church, uh, that fills the globe. People uh, that are Christians all over the world are part of the temple of God that points people to God. So we're the holy temple made up of the living stones. And this great celebration in the first three chapters of Ephesians cannot be grasped by our natural minds. We could never grasp the fullness of God's benefits to us. In fact, one of the prayers Paul prays now at the end of the chapter 3 is that we would understand and and experience the fullness of Christ. But he knows that in its entirety won't be known until we go to glory. But Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3 is is asking God to give us comprehension, grasp, a sense or a perception of all that is ours in Christ, especially the love of God towards us in Christ, so that we as the people of God would bring him glory. We would accent his greatness. This is the buildup to the end of chapter 3, and we find ourselves in this concluding prayer. The first three chapters are what is true about what God has done, and now we'll notice starting next week, chapter 4 to 6 is what to do in light of what is true. In light of all this basis of being in Christ, here are the things God wants us, his people, to do and live according to, chapters 4 through 6. But now we finish chapter 3, and we conclude the prayer that Paul prays that we would grasp all these truths. And these are the last two verses, which are a great doxology. In fact, James Boyce says, this is the greatest doxology, the giving of thanks or praise to God in the Bible. And there are many of them. So here now as I read verse 20 and verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, the days of this life can often be confusing, and we can be a bit anxious at times. But your word anchors us, brings us back to what is true, to what is timeless, what is eternal, what we can count on. It brings us stability. It brings us strength. It brings us encouragement. It brings us excitement as well. In your word, we find great clarity in this wonderful encouragement. By your Spirit's aid now, as we look at these last two verses of this great doxology in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 3, give us understanding about your ability. Assure us of your super ability to accomplish your will 
to answer our prayers as they are prayed according to your will. We see here the example of Paul, the apostle praying. We know that he very carefully explains in his words his expectation of your fulfillment of these things, and ultimately, not just for our salvation, but for your glory. May this be the focus of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul now, at the end of this section, has just completed a very huge ask of God on our behalf, pouring out revelation about God's work of salvation so far, building up to this point, adoption through Christ, the holy temple of God, this picture of the church, his new creation, this new community that we are. He reveals this magnificent mystery that had not yet been fully revealed, that the church is not made up of Jews and Gentiles, There's a dividing wall taken away between those two people groups, and we are one in Christ. Um, There's really a new race of people on earth. The people of God who are in Christ, and the old race, those who are under Adam. That's really how all of humanity is divided, in Christ or out of Christ. And in Christ, we are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a mystery revealed, and it's further encouragement. It's further reason for excitement about what God is doing in this new creation fulfilling his plan for the ages to bless through Abraham all tribes and tongues. Now, Paul pours out his heart at the end of the book of, uh, the book of chapter 3 of Ephesians, and he asks for several things. They're all big things, too. If you think about them, if you analyze them as we've been doing, you have to admit that if any one of those things happened in our life, we would be totally transformed. We would live completely differently. Whatever things are bothering us or occupying our stress, our minds, whatever it may be, it's not that they go away because it's the life God's called us to live, but our perspective about it would be totally different if this prayer of Paul would happen in the lives of believers in fullness. Remember, before these verses, 20 and 21, Paul prayed that we would be strengthened with power by his Holy Spirit in our inner beings a spiritual strength that would be able to deal with anything that comes our way. He prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would have the capacity given by him to believe it, to know it's true, to rest in it as truth, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, the love that God has shown us and demonstrated in Christ's death for us that's so sure cannot be denied, even if our feelings tell us otherwise, we know it's true. He's demonstrated his love towards us. While we were sinners, he died for us. And we would be rooted in that love so that we can have love for one another, each other in this community, this new community. He prayed that we would have strength to comprehend the multidimensional love of God for us in Christ, the breadth, the height, the width, and the length. Not just a flat love or a feeling, but the multidimensional love of Christ for us. Imagine if any one of these things would be true and fulfilled as God grants them, how transformed each of us, all of us, would be. Finally, he prayed just before these verses, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God through Christ. This is the end goal. This is what we long for. This is what we'll see ultimately in eternity. These are colossal requests. What Paul asks for is supernatural strength to realize that all of this is ours in Christ. If we read those verses that precede the final two verses, we probably think that's not possible. That's just so high. That's so lofty. You'd be right. It's not on your own or just by you thinking about it long and hard. It must be the act of God's Spirit to give us grasp of this 
That's what transforms us. And his word is the main way he does this with his spirit actively participating. And that's what we look forward to as we dig into these verses. And it comes to the last two verses of the chapter, it's like this capstone of praise, an apostolic outburst of praise. That's what we have in these two verses, a a proclamation about God's power and ability and how all glory must go to him. In fact, all the power to make us his holy temple and all that that implies and involves, all that power comes from God. Therefore, all the glory must go to him as well. Look at verse 20. To him who is able, then the beginning of verse 21, to him be glory. Paul has just prayed for the church, that the church would be rooted in Christian love, and he gives a confident declaration about God's super ability to answer this prayer of his, the power of God revealed in our lives. It's not just about answering this particular prayer of Paul. This is the power of God he's declaring that's true for all of the execution of his will, for the answers to all of our prayers that line with his will. God's power in our lives is in display in verse 20. Look at what it says. Now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Much there to be discovered. What a statement. It leaves no doubt about whether God could answer Paul's prayer. It leaves no doubt about whether God could answer your prayer. This is a statement about God's power in our lives. Verse 20, now to him first who is able. Now this is important because this will differentiate what the Ephesians would know to be ascribed as deities that their countrymen, and perhaps many of them before, would look to for help and aid. The temple of Diana is there. There are statues everywhere that people would pray to and ask for things from. They are not able Those idols, I-D-O-L, are idol, I-D-L-E. Our God is not. Now to him, who unlike Diana and all the other things we might go to for help, unlike them, now to him who is able. To be able means to have the ability or the power to do something. This is on the heels of everything that's been declared and especially this prayer for us to know the love of God in Christ. To be able, it comes from the word dynamite in the Greek, and you can tell what word we get from that, dynamite. This is power. He is able. He is powerful. He is strong enough. He has the capacity to make this thing I've just said, Paul says, to happen. I have the strength, God has the strength to bring something about uh, to the one who is able to have skill to accomplish this task, to have the capability to perform the thing that is asked for. To be able means to have the power necessary to answer Paul's prayer. Now to him who is able. Nothing else is able to answer our prayers and to provide what we need. To him who is able. In order to allow no doubt about God's power to fulfill Paul's prayer for us, he does a wonderful compounding of the description. Do you notice that? He just says so many things that are worthy of examination. He compounds description after description to picture the magnitude of God's power and ability. Look at verse 20 more closely. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Let's unpack that. First, we can say he is able. 
he is powerful enough to do whatever he wants. He is able. We could just stop there and we give praise to him. But then as we go through verse 20, we also see God is able to do what we ask. So if we ask something in his name according to his will, he is able to do it. He is able to do what you ask. So anything you come to him with, he can do if it's his will. It's not like you come to him with something that he wishes he could do, but oh, I just can't now. God doesn't, he never says that to his children when it's according to his will. And right here, his will is for us to know the love of God in Christ. He is able to do what we ask, what we utter with our mouths, what we say, what we request, a petition we make. He is able to do what we ask. But verse 20 says more than that. God is able to do what we think also. Not just what we ask, but what we think. Now, this could mean that we, we don't say everything that is in our heart. So we're not asking it out loud, but in our minds we're mulling it over, and God knows even that. More likely, though, in the greater context, it has to do with even things that we might not say out loud because we think they're too big. We imagine them. We imagine asking something or wondering if God would do, and he even knows those desires of our hearts, and he's able to do what we ask and what we imagine. Some of your versions translate it, imagine picturing that linguistic reality. He is able to do what we ask and what we think, what we imagine, what we envision. But verse 20 says more than that still. God is able to do all that we ask or imagine. All of it. There's nothing that we could ask for that would limit God. Verse 20 says more than that still. Short verse, but a lot there, removing all doubt about God's ability to do what we pray for. God is able to do far more than what we ask or think. Far more. But that's not it. God is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think. So, brothers and sisters, our God is a God of superabundance. We go to our parents sometimes in a limited way because they can only give us so much, and they can give us a lot. If we've been blessed, they've given us a lot. But they are limited, and you know their limitations, so you never ask them up to a certain point because you basically, as their child, know their limitations. No such truth about our God. There's nothing you can come to him with that he doesn't have the ability, if it's according to his will, which is the best for us, by the way, nothing out of his range of ability. He has a super abundance of ability. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I am positive that I pray way too timidly. When I think of things that the Lord might do, and if they're for his glory, truly for his glory, why would I hold back in my prayers and expectations about what he might do? Now, I know I hesitate because sometimes I don't think I pray for his glory, really. Like in my heart, it's somewhat for my glory or something for my happiness or or what have you. But when I contemplate whatever it is I want to ask of the Lord, think about it for a while and start to think, how would this look as a benefit to the name of God before people, that he would be glorified? That would make me much more bold about my prayers. I hope it is for you to pray for you and your families, for our church and its impact in this world for Christ, for our school, for the ministries that we are all part of, that we have connections to, that many of you support. Why don't we pray more boldly for these things? Because it says here he is able to do 
far more abundantly. The Greek word there is a great Greek word that even if you don't know Greek, you'll appreciate it. It's hyper-ekaruso, hyper-ekaruso, which is translated in some of your versions as exceedingly abundantly more. He is able to do immeasurably more than you ask or think. He is able to do infinitely more is a fair translation. He is able to do vastly more than more, far more abundantly. So let us not be timid to ask God for something. It's been an amazing six months for all the difficulties to actually um, see a church almost planted, have a building provided, have a school start when nobody else is starting, ministries pick up, and it's still, yes, it's very careful and difficult. There could be reasons for depression among everybody, but yet God, above what we could ask or imagine, does all these amazing things in our lives. And I'm sure that each of you, for all the disappointments that have been had, you can stop and pause and think of some of the great, amazing things that have happened in the midst of all these things. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Brian Chappell writes a commentary on this. I've referred to it before. He makes some very wise observations, one that encouraged me greatly. I share with you on this verse. How do we measure what God can do? And this is the answer he gives in light of this passage. He holds the whole earth in his hand. He created the universe, but continues to control the light in your room and the decay of an atom in the most distant galaxy. He makes the flowers grow and the snow fall. He rides on the wings of a storm and holds a butterfly in the air. And he who was before the beginning of all, we know still uses time as his tool of healing, of restoration, and retribution. Our thoughts are as a wind to him. Generations to come from, to come from us are already known fully to him who loves our family more than we do. He looks at the length of our life as a handbreadth and makes our soul, though sinful, his treasure forever. Such is the God who hears our prayers and is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or can even imagine. Well, we could ask, he has the ability and the power. How does he work this power out? Verse 20, the last part. According to the power at work within us. You say, I don't feel very powerful to do these things. You're not. It's not your power. It's his power at work in us. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you believers. Now, it's, there's something more dynamic than just this. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to place us in union with Jesus Christ. We've seen this before in the book of Ephesians. It's a core doctrine to your whole Christian life. I can't emphasize uh, your need to study this more. Because who God sees you as is not based on how you feel right now or what your boss said about you or the fight you had with your spouse or the way your kids treated you or the way your parents treated you or the way the world looks at you. That is not God's view of you. Even when you're at fault in those areas, because you are in union with Christ, God the Father looks at his son and sees his merit, sees his blessed earnings for us and he sees all of Christ's righteousness as your righteousness and that makes all the difference in how he advocates in your life how God is for you he's always for you and if he's for you like that who can be against you so it's not based on your feelings but your feelings will be driven if you're 
by, driven by what you're filling your mind with with regard to this. So it's important for us to hear this prayer, these last words of Paul, and recognize that this power that it is at work in us is not from us, it's from him through Christ, ministered by the Spirit. This is the power that God regularly works through ordinary people like you and I all the time. Now, we could think in Scripture of how he takes people that are pretty messed up, pretty broken, very ordinary, nothing attractive about them outwardly other than God's placement of blessing upon them. Think of Abraham for a moment, for the great hero of the faith he is. Uh, pause and reflect on where he was when God met him. He's this pagan guy who is worshiping false gods like everybody else on earth at that time. And even after he was called by God, he still was pretty cowardly in the face of persecution. Yet God uses Abraham. It's God's power so obviously working through this weak person, Abraham, to be the father of a great nation and more importantly, the father of a spiritual nation that goes on way past Israel as a nation. This is the power of God working in someone who's very normal, very average. Think about Moses. Moses, was he, he leads this massive nation of two million people total. And he stutters. He can barely talk. He has to depend on his brother to talk. He had a temper. I mean, I understand why he had a temper, but he had a temper. I mean, Moses was not a superstar on his own. It was by the power of God working in and through him. David, undisciplined, adulterous, even a man of violence. Yet God will describe him as after his own heart because he places his power upon him. He gives David repentance for his sin. That he knows that he is a sinner before God and has to depend on God's righteousness. This is the power of God working in regular, ordinary people to do amazing things. Paul, of all people, knows this. Paul writing these letters. He knows it's the power of God on him. He was an enemy of God. He used all his intellectual capacity to fight against the Christians and Christianity. And then God meets him, not because he wanted to meet him. He was looking for God in this way, and God met him. None of us were looking for God. If you think you were looking for God when you met him, it's because he made you look for him first. Nobody's looking for God. But God meets us, and then his power rests upon us, and he takes us regular people with all our foibles and flaws, and his power works through us. The power at work within us to fulfill these things is God's. The power comes completely from God, and so, verse 21, the glory must go to him. And it's all his power, so all the glory goes to God. And by the way, this is where you will be most content in your existence when you get this. Now, you'll see how much I emphasize the grace of God in us coming to know Christ, resting in him so we know we're right with God. Because on a personal level, that's what I'm most concerned with, right? We want to be right with God. But you know what that does? It frees you up to be what you're supposed to be, one who brings glory to God. Now, because you're born again to this, born again from your deadness, you're alive to the glory of God, and you can do the thing you're created to do, which is give glory to God. And that's where you'll find the most happiness. Your chief purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They go together. When you get this, everything else comes into play. When I'm striving after accomplishments um, on the surface, could be a promotion, could be a degree, could be someone's praise, it could be success in my children, it could be whatever it may be. People think well of me. I want that for myself because I like the way it feels for a little bit. But I am not created by God to receive the glory. I try to rob a bit of it because that's who I am as a sinner. 
But being born again, I'm freed from a hunger after my own glory, which is never, never satiated. And I'm turned to the one who will receive eternal glory, and that never gets old. So now all those things I mentioned, they're important in our lives. We shouldn't stop doing them, but we do them for the glory of God now. Look at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. God's glory on full display through the people of God, transformed people of God, sensing or experiencing the fullness of Christ that God is working in us. What is his glory? When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the visible expression of this invisible perfection that God has. And we see it in nature. It's so glorious to see the creation, to know the creator who made it. It points to him. It's so obvious, the glory of God in our salvation. If this resonates with you when I talk to you about the grace of God and you just well up with appreciation for what he's forgiven you for in Christ and what is now yours, um, that sense you have is a sense of the glory of God because only the glorious one, God himself, could do this thing. It says the glory of God is on full display. It talks about in two ways, in two places. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church. In the church. The church, you and I, we are called to display God's excellencies, his glory, the living temple. People should look at the church and say, what do they worship? Who do they think is the most important? This is why it's so important, even in the face of pandemics and so forth, that we come together to worship. Because we want to make the clear, timeless statement that's been made before us, it should be made after us, that we, no matter what's going on, need to get together to do what? Number one, bring glory to God. Give glory to Him. He is the Lord of everything, all our days, all our moments, everything in our life. Sicknesses, death, success, whatever. Pause and bring glory to God. That's why we come together. First and foremost, to Him be glory in the church. When the Apostle Peter was writing on this very topic, Listen to what he says as the mission of the church or the purpose of the church. He says to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You've been made his own possession. You've been made his holy temple to do what? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose for our existence is not salvation. It's the glory of God. Salvation allows us to give this willing glory to him who deserves it. The church, we are meant to showcase the glory of God. The thing people should gather the most from the church is that we have the highest of premiums on the great glory of God and we're humble before him. We don't deserve to come into his presence. We only do so through Christ. the glory of God. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this, all the attributes are meant to come to expression in our life together. All the attributes that God has work themselves out and manifest through the people of God, the glory of God in the church. All these metaphors we've studied for what the church is, a family, a kingdom, a temple, they are all meant to point people to our head, our king, the one who's constructing us, 
in our oneness as a people of God, united under this understanding, will prove God's hand in forming us and will bring glory to him as people see the church displaying the glory of God. This is the point, to him be glory in the church. Whatever is accomplished in the church, because God has allowed for it to be accomplished, whatever fruit comes from the church's activities and actions, whatever blessings we may see happen, all of them are for his glory. They're from him and they're for him. It's his power, it's his glory. And the church should be first to consistently point to this personally and corporately. And you know what? We love to do it. We love to do it. I was watching the series not too long ago that told the story of Michael Jordan in all those championships in Chicago. I was a student in Chicago when that was going on, and it was like living in a kingdom. For those, or in those years of the 90s when they were winning all those championships, it went without saying they would win. They just knew they were going to win. And it was based on the back of this one man most people understood. I mean, he was so set apart from everyone else. I don't know much about him personally, only what I saw in that and have gathered. But he had this insatiable appetite, quite frankly, for winning and for glory. But every time a championship would be won, there would be like a day of kissing the trophy. And the next day, he's all mad at somebody and wants to win it again next year. And the next year, and next year. And if you, if you watch him now in the interviews he did, and he completely controlled the editing of the whole show, he still is not satisfied. That guy is never going to be. Because human beings are not made with a capacity for real glory. We don't know what to do with it. I know how it is for you, but you make a, a big accomplishment. I've had several things in my life that I would view in my mind were big accomplishments to me. And like for a, a few minutes, it felt really good. And like it didn't take too long and it didn't anymore. I am not made with a capacity for actual glory. There's only one who deserves all the glory. What I am made for capacity for is to glorify that one. And when I figure that out, when you figure that out by God's grace, we understand that as a church, now we're only worried about all credit going to him. All of a sudden, I feel satisfied. All of a sudden, the happiness I was looking for or the joy I was looking for is realized because he will be glorified. That's what we're made with a capacity for. We're not made with a capacity to handle glory ourselves. Ephesians has been lacing this and preparing us all the way through for this climactic point of the first half. In Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, I loved, this. what a benefit. I'm a son. I love the feeling of a son. Yes, but the reason for that, and you should enjoy being a son or a daughter, the reason, though, is for the praise of his glorious grace. Later in Ephesians 1, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 1.14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Ephesians 3.16, just before our passage today, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And now verse 21. To him be glory in the church. You know, there's some questions we could always ask ourselves as a church, as the church, as one of the expressions of the church. How is God glorified in our midst? How does our worship glorify God? You know, oftentimes the question that is asked when we put together worship services or gatherings is, you know, what will people like? What will bring people in? What will make people comfortable? Now, I'm not saying those have no bearing whatsoever in anything you do, but that's not the first question. The first question, in order to help with the other one, how 
will this worship glorify and exalt God? How does our teaching and preaching glorify God? How does our fellowship with one another glorify God? How does our communication among believers glorify God? If you're someone watching two believers talking, oh, say, on social media, and how they talk to one another, how does that glorify God? That's a question every Christian should ask and be concerned with and want to know. How do our families glorify God? He must increase. We must decrease. Our chief end is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Enjoyment is what will come. Joy will come from that pursuit. You know, the key safeguard for God's glory, His glory being guarded, you can see in the second part of verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. It's not in the church or Christ Jesus. Pick one. It's in the church and in Christ Jesus. This consistent focus on Christ will always keep him glorified in his church, the head of his church. We the bride, he the bridegroom. In Christ Jesus, we know Jesus is the glorious one. When the apostles and those who lived in the first century got to see him with their own eyes and he ascended into heaven, the response in John's letter to this in chapter 1, one of the most important chapters in all the Bible about Jesus and his glory. John wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, perfectly obedient unto the point of death. Jesus and his finished work pictured in the person of Christ, the glorious one who came from heaven in order to be the second Adam, take our place, live obediently to the Father in an active fashion, obeying every aspect of his law. None of us could do this, but Jesus did it for us. The glorious one did this for us. Then he laid himself down passively and obeyed what was needed to pay for our sins, took the punishment we should take. The glorious one did this for us. He laid aside his glory for a moment in order to take this punishment for us to pay perfectly on the cross, dying for us, being resurrected, showing that he is truly the glorious one, sown in dishonor and raised in honor. That God the Father says, I accept this work of the Son, Jesus, the glorious one, and I raise him to glory, and he has ascended, and God ascends him to his right hand, where he is now seated, ruling from that place until he comes again. This is the glorious one, the one who deserves our praise. To him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus. Christ, equal with the Father, receives the praise along with the Father. And when should he receive this? Now and forever and through all our generations. That's an easy answer. Should have been happening before, we take the baton from the generation before us, we be faithful by his grace. In this generation, we train our children to take their generation when we're dead and gone so that they continue this praise until he comes again. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. John Calvin said it well. People should not only praise God just once and in one time period, but also there is reason to continue it. Not for the life of just one person or some people, but throughout all ages. Have you ever thought of worship like this? We just sang a hymn from John Newton, the first hymn we started with. He wrote that hymn in 1779, and for 200 plus years, people have been singing it. The generations continue. People die, 
and go to heaven. And they're, but there are people left, and they pick up the baton, and they sing the Newton song. They add songs. Each generation should. But we pick up ones from the other generation because they are part of this legacy of glory to God that spans the generations, and it spans the time periods. Um, the liturgy that we participate in some form has been participated in for hundreds of years. So we join in with the voice of all time to give glory to the one who deserves it. It's the closest we can come to eternal praise until we get there. And the church should recognize its place in every generation to be faithful to the last generation who was faithful. If the last generation wasn't faithful, we should shake the dust off our sandals and move from that one. But where it has handed us this legacy of God's grace, like we've received, we celebrate in honor to some degree the repetition at some level of those things, and we look forward to those perpetuated going forward for our children and our children's children. I pray all the time that some grandchildren or great-grandchildren of mine, long after I'm dead and gone, is sitting in this church listening to the word preached in this pulpit by somebody. Who cares who it is? We don't... It's not about us. It's all about his praise for eternity. And we have part in that is these people who just pass through like a, like a vapor. But in our time, throughout all generations, forever and ever, may we join in praising our God. The praise of God and the church should transcend one age into the next. That's what our prayer should be. And he closes with one simple word that I won't pass over. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Amen. This is a word of positive response. Paul's just poured out his heart in praise and adoration. And he says, yes, I affirm everything I've said. It's true. What I say is right. Yes. And when you think of the word amen... Who typifies amen in the Bible? Jesus himself. Jesus is the amen or the yes to God's satisfaction for us. Jesus is the yes to God's judgment on the cross. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he captures this very thought. He said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. He's talking about Christ. He said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, Christ. That is, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus, the amen. And that's how Paul finishes his prayer. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. You know, the Reformation era is an era we love here because it's part of what um, gave us shape as far as our tradition goes. But who cares about tradition? It's what was discovered there that still helps us and many Christians. Um, there were basically five discoveries that are accented. In fact, this will be the focus of the Sunday school class that we are going to have for the adults on the, starting on the 13th. It started with the rediscovery of the Bible. Now, I'll say it this way in logical form, and then I want to go back and say something to kind of conclude our thoughts about God's glory here. But there was a rediscovery of the Bible, which is the source for the rest of the discoveries. The rest of what we learn or relearn or refreshed in or revived in come from a revival of the Word of God, describing all these things. Next, right immediately from reading the Bible, it becomes clear that to believe the Bible and believe what it declares, you have to be given faith. So it's by God giving us faith in what the Bible declares, but more particularly, 
in the grace of God shown to us in Christ. This is revealed by the Scripture, and these are things that were revitalized in the Reformation. So the rediscovery of the Bible, a rediscovery of faith as the instrument that God uses to make these truths real to us, to lay hold of Jesus. Grace, that is God's undeserved favor shown to people who should get his wrath. It's only God's grace. It's grace alone that we come to him, which we've seen completely laid out for us in Ephesians. Probably no better place than the book of Ephesians. Grace to us. We've been begraced all because of the person of Christ in him alone. This is the other degree of discovery of Jesus in him alone. So these first four solas of the Reformation, many of you are familiar with, lead us to this final one, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. But here's what I would suggest to you. I gave you the kind of, maybe the historical timeline for how things came out, came down. But if you looked at the practical way it actually worked, what revived or what it started to prompt people in that 16th century was where the church had become so consumed with, the, with man as center. Man tied with the state. Man in all his pomp. You know, the rise of the hierarchy in the church. And it became no different than the world. And it was all built up on man's glory. The buildings they made, the outfits they wore, the prayers they prayed, the distance that the average person couldn't have the Bible because they were not lofty enough to understand this heavenly language. And yes, there were all sorts of things unique to the time and the difficulties of the time, but it got to the point where God in his actual glory was obscured by the very limited glory, small g of man. And so it prompted one man like Luther to realize something isn't right here. This is not about the glory of God. We can't stand before God. He's too glorious, but these people are acting like they can stand before him, or we could do this and be right with God just by our actions. And the weight of the glory of God weighed upon the reformer, and he knew he could not stand right before God. He was too glorious. He had to have one mediate for him. And so he searches for the answer, and he has a man tell him, you've got to pour, you've got to pour yourself upon Christ. You're going to go mad. You're, you're going to die like this. And he sent him to the scriptures to find Christ. And he went to the scriptures and then he found the things that we just, I just went through explaining those high points of the Reformation. But make no mistake, the main issue that was lost that led to the Reformation was the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus. The thing that's regained by the Reformation that we only by God's grace can maintain is the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus. Soli Deo Gloria. John Piper said well that God's glory is the outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and the greatness of God's manifold perfections. And we only know that glory, we only behold that glory through his grace to us shown in Christ. It says in the Psalms, David writing, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Do you know that Johann Sebastian Bach, he wrote at the bottom of every one of his compositions, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria. To summarize Ephesians 1 through 3, God has done a great work in saving us, He has brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's by his power, by his spirit, that he's made us alive together with Christ. He has given us the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. He has placed us into a redeemed community. He has placed us together in a spiritual family. There's no division between us and Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus. 
He's building a holy temple. He continues to build it this day, made of living stones. You, brothers and sisters, redeemed sinners. God has done all these things. It's all by his power. And Paul prays that we might be able to understand what God has done, these profound truths, that we'd sense them in our lives, that they would transform our lives. Paul prays for us to be strengthened spiritually, that we would be stable and strong no matter what happens, that we would be filled with the fullness of Christ. He prays that we might be able to comprehend the incomprehensible. But there's something also clear in his prayer. God is fully able to do all these things that he has promised. He has all the power to do all that he has promised. Therefore, he must receive all the glory. To him alone be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this revelation in these two verses that 